you have to be in the business of advocating, not for necessarily participants individually. I mean, you should. It's a nice thing to do. But you've got to be advocating for the business. As benefits professionals, it's real nice to think of us as trying to do the best things for each individual person. But we need to understand what the business is trying to do, where they want to be, what kind of employees and the population and what kind of business they want to be doing in the next, as I said, three to five years. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, Make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that, quite frankly, often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest today, Sean Snyder, is a benefits director who's always thinking ahead. Listen in to hear some of the risks that he's taken in his career and how sometimes learning things the hard way can lead to success as well as opportunity. Let's dive right in. All right, Sean Snyder, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate being here. We're going to have some fun. You ready? I am ready. All right. Well, why don't you tell us who you are and what it is that you're doing in your life? Absolutely. I'm a director of benefits, and I'm also the past president of the Georgia ISCBS, a uh, group for other benefits professionals. And I've been doing this for about, let's call it 17 years. Wow. Do you like quantifying when you start getting past that like uh, decade? Well, it's funny you mention that because the first decade, I couldn't wait to say I had a decade of experience. I was like, oh, I, not year nine. I'm like, oh, just one more year. I get to say a decade. And then I got to you know, a few years. I'm like, well, this is just starting to sound weird because now I'm just every year having to update a page saying, oh, FYI, it's no longer 16. It's 17 years. So <laughs> I think at some point you're right. Once I hit that, I think that after two decades, I probably just stopped updating it completely. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just made an introduction to somebody uh, the other day and I quantified that, oh, you know, I've been doing business with Dennis for the past 22 years. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So we got a lot to talk about, Sean. I'd like to start first to let the audience just kind of get a better insight into kind of who you are as a person. And then from there, we'll roll into what I call the main segment. And then we're just going to fly from there. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So get ready for the rapid fire questions. All right. Introvert, extrovert, or would you find yourself toggling somewhere in the middle of what they call a centrovert or an ambivert? So I suppose the answer is ambivert. I'm an analyst at heart. And like, for example, working at home for the last eight to nine months has not adversely affected me. I like to think through concepts and other than the excessive amount of Zoom calls, it's actually been quite pleasant at home. But when I think of all the in-person meetings, presentations, et cetera, that I gave prior to the pandemic, not only was I not drained by them, I was actually energized. And that they say is a key component of being an extrovert. 
So I guess technically I've got some extrovert tendencies. I don't know. I, uh, that might be just the next evolution of human professionals fighting off the machines, though. That's a good point. Lefty or righty? Righty. My grandfather was ambidextrous, so my whole childhood I spent like growing up going, oh, I hope I'll become ambidextrous, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Hmm. I would teach myself to, uh, I, I can't write, but like sports and anything that I typically do, I try to teach myself how to do things both with both. Well, just using my mouse every day, I found that I cannot use my left hand for that purpose. <laughs> I got to tell you, that has been one of the best productivity things that I did do because I, I, I now only use the left so I can use the mouse and then write at the same time. Ooh, good idea. Yeah, it took a little bit because it is, especially if you'd like draw or you have to circle things sometimes, that, that gets, that's not that easy. But yeah. other than that, it's been a great productivity enhancer. Great idea. So are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm a night owl, but my all my family are early birds. So Saturday mornings suck for me. <laughs> Can you quantify, like when you say night owl, that's like when you're really kind of cranking out your work or that's just, you just prefer to kind of stay up and that's your personal time is done at night? I actually, I, another one of these weird kind of multi-stages, I'm very productive once I'm up. Like, I mean, no matter what time, if I get up at 5 a.m. or 10 a.m., I'm super productive once I am up, but I do tend to stay up really late. So if I have early meetings and stuff like that, it's just shorter sleep. But yeah, I'm, it, so I guess I like being a night owl. I've always been kind of a night owl, but and if you let me sleep, I will sleep, but nobody in this house allows me to sleep. <laughs> Gotcha. They're not letting you. What are you doing to stay sharp mentally? Is there something that you do like normally or has that deviated at all during these past year? Yeah. Um, it's no secret that trying to learn continuously keeps people sharp. But I think another key component is debating what you've learned and what you think is right. And this goes across the board. Because, you know, hearing opposing views and being able to accept them or alter other one's thinkings is where you really show mastery of a subject matter. That's a good one. And how long have you been of that thought process? A long time. Even when I was young, I find that like, if you miss something, like that's where you really learn stuff. It just adds that extra piece in the puzzle, keeps the discussion, keeps you sharp, not just kind of the reading or hearing of something new. I would say that if you all you had to do is read stuff, and I discovered this, I think, maybe high school. If all you have to do is read stuff, you could just skip school and watch the Simpsons call it a day. So, I mean, like, what I'll say is after you hear this podcast, I want you to tell me that I'm wrong. And if you don't, at least tell someone else why you think I'm right. Because I know I'm going to be telling people that. <laughs> when was the last time that you changed your perspective or belief on something that you felt so strongly about then? Oh, um, I think it's it happens more often than my wife would say it happens. But what I will say is, you know, like especially in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the world. And I don't want to dive too far into that. But I think that you believe you understand one thing and then you see something else. And as I said, you have that moment where you go, oh, I've missed something or I didn't understand that fully. And that happens, as I said, for me more often than, as I said, I'd like to admit, but I think it's a good thing because that just happens. And I think it probably happens uh, close to as much as I'm able to show someone else when I'm right and they're not. It's interesting. I, I love the saying, it just reminded me, and I'm sure I'm going to botch this, but essentially it's like when you find yourself 
the smartest room or the smartest person in the room, it's time to get out of the room. <laughs> That's exactly right. I've heard that before too. And I always say you definitely don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You're absolutely right. It just pushes you down in that skill level. You want to be surrounded by the most competent people. And I've always said that about diversity. It's like diversity is obviously a relatively hot topic, but I've always said if you are not hiring the absolute best person for that role or work, you know, you're just hurting yourself. Yeah, completely agree with that. Before we go into the main segment, I got one more question for you. Tell me something that most people that know you just don't know about you. This is an interesting. I'm a pretty open book, so I try to think of things people really wouldn't wouldn't even think to ask me. And I stumbled across a you know, relatively humorous one. I'm obsessed with zoos. Most people know I travel worldwide and I spend a lot of time overseas, but they might not know that every place I go, I am chasing not just one zoo, but two or three zoos. I love seeing how different countries and different states design and run their zoos and what they highlight and what animals matter there. It's just a really interesting experience. And uh, I will say that life is about experience. Oh, yes, it is. There it is. I like that. So talk to me about your, from a professional standpoint, you've been in the benefits world for 17 plus years. Now you run benefits. How'd you get into this field? And can you just tell me a little bit about the things that you're responsible for? Sure. So I got into benefits like most benefits people, I think you've probably heard, by accident. I needed a job. I had a temp job. And they said, do you want to stay here and be a professional benefits person? And I said, wait a second, isn't this HR? And the benefits director laughed and said, it's a little different. It's benefits. And so that's how I fell into benefits. I would say that the development focus happened by being pressured to get more into the field and not just considered a job. So that's how I kind of chase down that piece. What I do regularly is I oversee both benefits as a department, but also as a strategic mindset, which is what do we need to do? How do we build the right plans, find the right vendors, and understand our population to really drive forward the non-cash compensation part of this business? So would you say that you're more strategic than in the weeds? I, I think that's what I try to be. I mean, strategic benefits design is number one. And I know you've probably heard from other folks that when you get into benefits and total rewards, you have open enrollment and then you have 11 more months. And then other 11 more months is where you really spend time with that strategic mindset. How do we need to get there? I've said this before, you must be thinking three years in advance. I can't tell you that's where people run into all the time is if you think one year in advance, you're going to miss out on what you could do because you're too far behind because you just got there. Well, let me ask you and and, and challenge you a little bit on that if you're okay with this. Absolutely. um, So... If you're thinking three years in advance, I guess telemedicine was still, that's that was still three years ago, but how does that affect your thinking when there's new technologies or things are changing so rapidly? Well, that is a uh, tough point. And that's where you got to get into that strategic mindset of where do you need to be? What, what is your population need? So you can start thinking of those things, start understanding what, again, what you're missing. So when the opportunities show up, you aren't just figuring it out then. When somebody comes and says, "Hey, uh, you know, there's this, I think there's this, it was either a Far Side uh, cartoon or something, where they they use it all the time in management, which is two people trying to change a square wheel on a cart, and somebody's like, "Hey, let's build a circular wheel," and they said, "Not now, we're too busy changing this wheel. It's square." 
And that's where you need to be is you need to know that this is an inefficient model. And while there might not be a solution for this square wheel right now, there is going to eventually be something else. So when that wheel shows up, that's round, you go, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been looking for the last two years. Yeah. That's a, that's a great analogy, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about when it comes to the planning, you're probably getting a lot of pushback from finance because they're strictly making their decisions just by numbers. How does that strategy go into working with them and being able to plan that far in advance? Yeah, absolutely. There's a horrible acronym called ROI, return on investment. And that is what we fight every day. It's how do you prove that what you're going to do is going to turn around and make financial sense that adds to some either element of profitability or increased value out there. Benefits, of course, is a money-taking department, not a money-making department. When you have like a sales department, it's easy to say, oh, if we do X, we will probably see this kind of return. Whereas in benefits, you're saying, hey, if we do X, we might have less cost expense, no cost expense, but less, or we might see more of this. But rarely do people say, this one single benefits change changed my career trajectory, my, my long-term focus on the company, my retention, my recruitment. I mean, it's a little bit of a unicorn in a sense of what could we do that really just makes this huge effect to the business. And I would say that, again, it's all incremental. So we have to continue to prove why we want to do it. And then you have to hope that you have some finance folks that understand what you're doing makes sense and then hope that they mean back to you and say, you're the uh, subject matter expert. We're going to hand down this. And I would say like most things in life, sometimes you win, sometimes you put it in your back pocket and come back and hope they see it a little clearer the next year. So you've had to have done a lot of things to get you where you are today. A lot of good things. I'd love for you to share maybe some of the things that went wrong, whether it was a a plan that you wanted to roll out or, and even just your thoughts on that and trying things. Absolutely. I have learned everything the hard way, so to speak. Someone once said, I cannot for the life of me tell you who said it, but they said success occurs when opportunity meets preparation. And for me, that means constantly learning and thinking out new scenarios. And that's not the spaghetti method, you know, throwing things against the wall, see what sticks, that stuff. It's thoughtfully considering all the options. And that includes dumb ideas or so-called dumb ideas. In my career, I run into a lot of folks who use the put as many things into the benefits package as possible. Every little thing that's new, that is not the way to succeed. It's certainly the way to look busy, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's not the way to succeed. And I have in the past tried to focus on impact neurization. And that's the key word, impact, which is meeting value for dollar that you're allowed to spend. And so when I talk about the hard way, there's been a lot of failures and you have to take the time to fail. Early in my career, I was only concerned with what I was going to win. I didn't chase down potential dumb ideas. I didn't chase down ideas that I thought were ahead of the time. I didn't look at solutions that weren't perfect. Like, hey, this vendor has been doing this for X amount of time. This is the best candidate because they're the best at it. So smaller vendors got pushed aside. Again, these new ideas, I would say that if you, if I was new in my career right now, I would be one of the last people on the telehealth band. And we know that you better have been on the telehealth bandwagon two years ago. Otherwise, you're behind that. And so that's where I guess I would say that I've not done well was not chasing down that the idea that building the right plan didn't mean that everything was technically correct. It had to be the right plan, for the right purpose, the right moment, impact. What are the risks of not taking risks? 
or you're behind. Uh, as I said, I took a risk this last year at my current company, and we changed our telehealth model from a traditional, you know, hey, you want to go and see a telehealth? It's 20 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever the cost is for that service. And we changed it to a PEPM model, which uh, means per employee per month, where we said, what we're going to do is we're going to pay a fixed fee to a vendor, and it's not going to cost you as much as, as a participant to use it. And then the pandemic hit three months later, and I became a hero. Because now all of a sudden, we had this no-cost telehealth when nobody could get out of their house to go to the doctor. And uh, the risk, if I had not done that, was that we would have been like, oh my gosh, we got to find a vendor that does this. We got to find a way to pay this. We got to call our outside legal and say, how can we encourage telehealth when it costs our $15 an hour employees 40 bucks to see a telehealth vendor? So by taking that risk and saying, we're going to do this, when the opportunity showed up, we were prepared. That's great. And you probably also, you know, if you were just looking to uh, roll this out now, it would probably cost you more money. You'd be behind the eight ball and you'd probably look really bad. Yeah. And we'd also be chasing down, hey, can we implement this? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, we'll totally implement it. It's going to take us six months. <laughs> Instead of being in the front where we could say like, hey, we're going to do this on our schedule, not your schedule. And is that something that those that are listening that are in the world benefits, something that they should kind of highlight and remind the finance department about? Or, or yeah. you, is part of me? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, when you, you have to be in the business of advocating, not for necessarily participants individually. I mean, you should. It's a nice thing to do. But you've got to be advocating for the business. As benefits professionals, it's real nice to think of us as trying to do the best things for each individual person. But we need to understand what the business is trying to do, where they want to be, what kind of employees and the population and what kind of business they want to be doing in the next, as I said, three to five years. And we need to be building a structure behind that that supports that goal, that strategic mission from the CEO, from the CFO. And you need to say, hey, look, this is what's going to do it. This is what's going to help us be sticky, as I say. We want to be sticky where people come in and go, this is a good place to work but it also has this great item or this excellent item or, or just it's hard to find this item somewhere else. And, you know, we've heard of all these wonderful things at the Googles where you can sleep in a special pod and get a free sandwich at lunch, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not practical for most businesses. So how do you make it easy? And I, I, I use this example as telemedicine. It's a great example. You go out there, you have an app on your phone, you pull it up and you get connected for $0 and you can, for you, your spouse, your kid, and that's a great opportunity, I think, to, to be sticky. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and it's really interesting. Someone that I was speaking with that has a similar role to yours, I forgot if it was last week or the week before, was telling me that she was getting all this pressure from the top of saying, hey, listen, our benefits don't align with our culture and what we stand for. And her whole thing was, well, listen, you've made it all about the dollars, which doesn't afford us to align with our culture. So my hands are tied. That's a very fair example of a traditional benefits problem, which is how everybody says like, oh, I wish I could offer this or, hey, our employees are saying this costs too much or this doesn't provide enough of this coverage. And that's a great, I used to say to someone like I had a regular CFO that would come and say, oh my gosh, we, we need to do this. And I'd be like, that's great. Just give me a million bucks. We got it done. And they'd say, what do you mean? I'd be like, well, it's not free. And so benefits, unfortunately, is a rising cost in most companies, more so than I would say salary. I know there's some stuff on the horizon coming, but more than so than salary, benefits just cost more and more each year. And it's something that feels like you're getting the same. And so 
if you go out and you know, you're trying to buy a loaf of bread, you know, if you had to just keep paying more and more each year, eventually you'd either say, I'm done with bread or I need to find another place to buy bread. There's a common problem. How do you convince finance folks to give you the money to support their vision? Because again, we don't write the vision benefits. And anyone who says they write the vision needs to look back and say they, sh- they shouldn't be. They should be talking to their CEO and their CFO saying, what is the vision, guys? And let's let's get there. A good point. And you said something to me the other day when we spoke in terms of rising costs. You were talking about how pharmacies rising at 15%, medical is, I think you said seven to ten percent. And then I, I forgot what the other one you talked about. But I mean, I mean, these are just those are massive growth. We're like uh, yeah. I mean, a huge percentage. Yeah, I mean, medical trend, you know, it could be seven, ten, twelve percent. Depending on your industry. Now, this is, this is year over year, right? Yeah, that- exactly. So each year you're picking up, like, you know, as I said, I mean, each year you've got a loaf of bread and it costs a buck, right? And then like pharmacy next year, that loaf of bread costs a buck 15. Nothing changed about that loaf of bread. It just costs more. And so I mean, it's an oversimplification. But the concept, though, is, is that if you have a $10 million plan, your $10 million plan will cost you $1.5 million next year, potentially more than it does. And you haven't added $1.5 million in new value. And so a lot of the concepts you end up with is how do we cut back the costs? How do we shift costs to employees? And of course, there's a point you can't do that anymore. And that's, again, where you get creative. And that's, again, back to this telemedicine concept. Everybody knew telemedicine was a way to cost shift a little bit and save. But how do you do that without cost shifting to your employees? Because then eventually they get overwhelmed with costs as well. So when do you leverage the experience that you've gotten from the CEBS? Is that how you're leveraging it? Like being able to tap into these network of other people that carry that same designation? So the Certified Employee Benefit Specialist designation is like the gold standard in benefits. It's a statement that not only do you understand benefits, but you're dedicated to the craft. And I do call it a craft because it takes a lot of effort to earn to learn benefits. How many years is it? I'm sorry. It's like two yeah. years, three years? It varies because it's multiple exams, but I would say most people get it in two to three. Some of us, as we get older, can lean back to when we remember it was eight exams. And I remember my original boss telling me, oh, you kids got it easy. It was 10 exams. And so it's still a multi-course exam. And unlike some of the other HR certifications, it's not just one that's super study hard and pass this one exam and then just keep recertifying, right? It's a series. And so it creates a benefits muscle and that muscle has to be exercised. So I would say that it's first that test that says, you know what you're doing on a base level or that you've learned what you could like a university, right? And then it continues to allow you, like say a local chapter level, which I highly recommend folks join. It's a, where do you get new information? Where do you see insightful speakers who can give you hot topics and hot new concepts? And uh, where do you get connected with government agencies that come in and tell you the answers? There's nothing better than one of the, one of the regular chapter uh, events we have, which is meet the DOL essentially, which is like, hey, these are the guys that are come in and say, oh, you didn't do this, or you did do this, or here's how you're not going to see us, you know, right? And so... That's the kind of stuff you can get by not only getting your CVS, but participating in a local chapter. So it's a good idea for any benefits professional, anyone who thinks they're going to be in benefits for a long time, document where your skill is, your craft, and then turn around and network, but also learn, continuously learn. What has it done for you? For me, it has done that continuous learning. It's I am also a fellow and, and a fellow is where you take a series of exams, again, you know, like two, usually two exams every two years, 
where you're relearning new stuff. What's new? What's hot? What are you going to run into? And that's one step further. But I will say that the overall CDS chapter just keeps me connected, not only to other benefits professionals, but to those speakers that teach me something or say, or at minimum, get me thinking. And uh, I think we talked about this a while back where we were talking about the pharmacy stuff. If I had not been part of the chapter, I wouldn't have heard a speaker who talked about some of this back-end pharmaceutical PBM stuff. And while I knew it existed in a sense, finding someone who had enough information to tell me more made me realize that I could learn more about it and get better. Yeah. So it it gave you access to just a deeper network of all different types of professionals and just experts in this space that could fill in some potential gaps that you might be missing. Absolutely. Networking and learning are the keys to uh, being part of an organization like the CBS organization. That's great. So what are you, I mean, just in my experience, and I could be wrong, but just, again, I'm sharing my experiences. I've noticed that a lot of the people that are in the benefits world really aren't networking. They're really not building those kinds of relationships. What what do you say to that? I think there's a truth to what you're saying. What I have found, and I will cautiously tread here so I don't upset anyone else. (laughs) I don't want to put you in a bad spot. (laughs) But I will say that what I found with benefits folks is benefits folks tend to be a little bit more in the sit down and study, sit down and understand, a little analytical and less in chasing again, their own career. Now, that's obviously a generalization, but I will say that even myself, my first thought is when I go to, for example, a CBS chapter meeting is, what am I going to learn here? It's not necessarily who am I going to meet here, it's what am I going to learn? And I think we as an organization of benefits folks need to say, all right, we also need to meet other folks because learning this from these folks, we should say, hey guys, what can we do for you for teaching us this? That's a great point. And you were the head of uh, the CBS for Georgia, or what was your role? Yeah, I've had many roles. I've been on the board for at least six years. My most recent one was president of the Georgia chapter of the ISCBS, which is the, the post-certification organization, the International Society of Certified Employee Benefit Specialists. And the vice president role, I played the treasurer role, I played the secretary role, and they have an official role called past president, where I'm supposed to be working with our really uh, talented new president to help him get up to speed and carry the torch for a while. Gotcha. And by being in that role, what did that do? What did that do for you? It kept me very busy and <laughs> trying to make sure I, uh, I, we got stuff, especially since one of the two years I was president was uh, a pandemic year where we really weren't allowed to get together, which is a core functionality of a chapter. So we did a lot more. How can we work with our members indirectly? Like how can we get them answers and how can we focus into the solutions that the national chapter offers and the chapter the national organization? And I think that my current role as past president, I really hope that I can provide a little bit more mentorship, which I think is a real key component to networking is being out there and helping the next person take a step up. I love that. Huge fan of mentorship and something that most people don't have a mentor. Or if they do, they don't have uh, the proper relationships or the right goals of that relationship. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Any predictions that you have on the field of benefits? Yeah, predictions. I love predictions, especially about benefits. Uh, You get to read that crystal ball and throw out business ideas that you'll never be a part of. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Well, I would say that... um, Truly, seeing the future is a tough step. You're trying to envision something that doesn't exist. And I would say that's not about building the better mousetrap. It's about building the trap for whatever animal we don't know will invade our house in five to 10 years or 
preventing that animal from getting in. I got a quote from Steve Jobs, uh, I think, who said, uh, if Ford had asked people via focus group what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And mm. instead, they gave them a car. So if I had to list my predictions, I would say I've got three. Everyone thinks of telemedicine as the future, but I would say it's one step farther integrated solutions that start with telemedicine, then they move into wearables, home-based technology to report back in, provide the solution, whether it be prescription drug or some sort of holistic health treatment. You and I have talked about Amazon is primed to move forward in this, no pun intended with the prime reference. It's got a pharmaceutical delivery system. Adding a telehealth solution is really as simple as it just buying one in the market. They've got echo devices that already push the limits of being invasive, I'd say. Then, I mean, who's to say that you won't get an echo blood pressure machine or a integrated diabetes blood sugar monitor and then add in an AI tool that says, hey, did you know you didn't eat this? And by the way, you can order that from Amazon Fresh, Whole Foods, you know, right? That's a big one. I'd also say from a really nerdy benefits concept, the concept of the cafeteria plan. Uh, the last 20 years, the concept of a cafeteria plan has been about pay for this benefit or keep it as salary. Uh, that's the core component. But really, there's if you go back, there's a credit concept where you get credits to use. And with our Millennial and Gen Z folks really looking for customized benefits. I mean, this is no secret. We've heard this a hundred times, if not more. I think we're going to see packages that get way more personalized, where you really are picking using credit, saying, I want X or Y or Z, and not just paying for the benefit and getting cash instead, but saying, you get these options, pick one or pick 10. I think taxation surrounding that kind of compensation is going to be a really lucrative field. If I was a law school student in my first year, I would be in the benefits taxation field by the end of my law school career. Really? So that's super interesting. I like, and, and I, so actually let me rewind a little bit. So you're talking about like a personalized benefit package, almost like an a la carte where there's, you know, you've got a bunch of things to choose from for yourself personally. Is that how you're thinking? So you're, you're yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially, so I mean, if you go back again, the cafeteria 125 concept, which is really what all our pre-tax benefits are based on, this idea that you have an opportunity to choose what you want, has really derived into, oh, you can choose to have medical or have dental or get cash. But we think of it as paying. But if you really go back to the main concept, it's you're being offered this in lieu of cash, right? And we just have, we have these premiums down there, but we're, we're backing up the other direction. You're not just buying like, oh, I want to buy benefits. You're saying, I'll take this instead of cash. And that's where the concept of non-cash compensation, which is benefits, really comes from. You are talking about not taking pay in exchange for this alternative form of pay. And a lot of it's written a long time ago. And so what you've got is you've got this concept of pre-tax salary reduction. I remember distinctly back when you would sign a form that says, I agree to reduce my salary in exchange for 401k, in exchange for medical, in exchange for dental. We don't do that anymore because we've all accepted if you're a legal president that eh, it doesn't matter anymore. But I do think that you know if you, if you go out there and you ask some of these younger generations coming into the workforce, and remember, it's not just millennials, people talk about millennials like they're this weird group but you know most of these you know there's a lot of millennials who are almost 40 years old and the next group is our gen z centennial group and they're asking for things that are they're asking for flex time for example well if you're asking for flex time and so people want to have less time working well how do you change someone's salary to accommodate that without literally just changing their salary and if you want to offer somebody for example somebody says hey you know what's really important to me is i want to I don't know, a bicycle to get to work. Why can't we offer that? 
right now it's because taxation says, all right, certain things are acceptable and other things we have taxes. So the solution is, say you had a really, really, really talented person who said, hey, you know, I want you to buy me the nicest bike to get to work because I work in this city and I want you to pay for a little rent on a tiny little bike cubicle next to the office and, and next to my apartment. Well, right now, the solution would be, sure, we'll do that. We love you. We want you. We're going to do this. But we have to gross up the money to pay your taxes, where you have to pay the taxes on this to make it happen. And so it's a weird concept because you're saying, okay, yeah, I'll give you this. But the company's going to have to front you more money, or you as the employee are going to have to pay more in taxes because we're paying for something that doesn't fall into this. So when I say cafeteria plan, I think that we're going to have options where people are going to say, oh, here are 20 options we can choose from. Let me ask you this, because I, I just realized the time. I think you've really struck on something here, Sean. For those that agree, what would you recommend that they do to learn more about this or potentially follow this path? Oh, this is a tough one. Very tough question. Uh, I wish I had a prepared answer for it. I would say, though, that really understanding going into what I call executive compensation, because that's where you see a lot of the creative stuff right now. We, and we know that. I mean, you know, like if you look back even 20 years, private jets, these are executive compensation, but they are things that are taxed and things that are outside the norm. MBAs, you know, where you pay for your upcoming CFO's MBA and they pay for it, but they have to tax you on it because it's compensation. I would say start an executive compensation to start understanding those concepts. And then, but again, keeping the other ear to the ground to understand what's being asked for, because it's very easy to get lost in the what ifs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, as I said, you know, it was only two years ago that student loan payment was pipe dream. And now there are whole businesses that are running down the road full speed to allow companies to pay student loans instead of pay tuition benefits. It's a whole other conversation. I know. Wow. <laughs> Sean, <laughs> this was great. This was insightful. And we might, I, I might put it together a panel on this. So, so you and I can talk when this is over about that a little more, if that's something of interest, but you've really just piqued my curiosity. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole when we get off this. Well, I will say that I think this is attributed to Peter Drucker, but one of the quotes I've always lived by is, the truly dangerous thing is asking the wrong question and getting the right answers. And <laughs> I think that's absolutely true in this area is that you know, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole because we've asked the question and we're going to get really far down this question. The question, is that the right question to ask, right? And I, I think you're right, which is we've got to get there, but which questions do we start with? And that is a keep both ears, both directions hear what's coming, but also make sure you're prepared for what you didn't even think of. That's a great point. And I love that we're ending on a quote, which is a beautiful thing. Sean, you make it a great day, my friend. This has been great. Thanks, Adam. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, Subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise. Network